Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and this week we will be talking about primates in Switzerland. And yes, of course, there are primates in Switzerland. And about a recent ballot initiative in Basel regarding their rights. Charlotte Blattner, a Swiss attorney and professor, will join me to discuss this very recent effort, the pluses and minuses of ballot initiatives, which are a really important part of Swiss law, and the implications for the global fight for fundamental rights. Before we get to that interview, I just want to mention that I hope you are also checking out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. Recent episodes include interviews with Jeff Sebo, who teaches in the Animal Studies program at NYU, and who has a remarkably timely book out called Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Why Animals Matter for Pandemics, Climate Change, and Other Catastrophes with Richa Mehta of Vegan Outreach India, who will be discussing the vibrant vegan movement there, and with David Van Beveren, who heads up Vegan Hacktivists, which is doing some amazing work creating and improving the online presence of all sorts of animal protection organizations for free. So you might want to check that out. I'll also take a moment to ask for your support for the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Hen House Podcast. If you are in a place where you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount, and we would be so grateful for that. Okay, let's get to this interview. Charlotte Blattner is a senior lecturer and researcher at the Institute for Public Law at the University of Bern in Switzerland. She obtained her doctorate in 2016 at the Interface of International and Animal Law as part of the doctoral program Law and Animals at the University of Basel. Her dissertation project, Protecting Animals Within and Across Borders, Extraterritorial Jurisdiction, and the Challenges of Globalization, was published open access by Oxford University Press. She also published the book Animal Labor, A New Frontier of Interspecies Justice, together with Kendra Coulter and Will Kimlicka at Oxford University Press. And she worked as a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Law School on a project titled Environmental Law Beyond Anthropocentrism. She is currently working on a project related to the complex and urgent challenges that climate change poses to Swiss constitutional and administrative law. And she will be joining me right after this. We are so excited to share a new free resource from the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy, the Brooks Animal Law Digest Canada Edition. This edition is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on Canada's most important animal law and policy issues. It will be published twice monthly as a collaborative effort with the University of Toronto Faculty of Law's research support. Like the Brooks Animal Law Digest U.S. edition, the Canadian Digest serves as a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of developments or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. All content will be accessible on the Brooks Institute website and spotlighted via email twice monthly. Subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest Canada edition at thebrooksinstitute.org slash subscribe. And of course, if you're not yet subscribed to the U.S. edition, you can do the same for that there. Vermont Law School's new Animal Law and Policy Institute has partnered with the ASPCA to offer two summer animal law media fellowships. Media fellows get housing, a stipend, 
books and registration to audit one of VLS's summer animal law courses, give a public lecture, and interact with students and faculty. The deadline to apply is March 14th, and more details are available at vermontlaw.edu slash media hyphen fellowships. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Charlotte. Hi, Marianne. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor and pleasure to talk to you today. Well, I feel exactly the same way. We had hoped to be talking about a a much more celebratory way of speaking about this initiative. But when we planned this podcast, we knew it would be after the vote. And we knew that either way the vote went, this was going to be an important thing to talk about. So that wasn't by accident. And before we get to talking about the specifics of the initiative and what happened and what the story is and what the story will continue to be. Can you just talk a little bit, give us a little lay of the land, since most of our listeners are not Swiss, about the current legal landscape for animals in Switzerland? Just briefly to the first point that you mentioned, I think it's actually a wonderful opportunity that we get to speak about this now that the vote happened and it turned out so-called negative. We'll delve into more detail about this, but I think there's plenty of opportunity to talk about the meaning and the broader consequences and the strategies for the coming years when it comes to primate rights and animal rights more broadly in Switzerland. So Switzerland is actually, and I believe every single country has that belief about itself, that it is a pioneer in animal law. We tend to believe that what we have is a fantastic system because we have some specialties that where we've manifested a pioneering role, so to speak. So we were one of the first countries to officially ban battery caging for laying hens, for example, in 1992. We were the first country to protect animals' dignity, and we did that in the Constitution, which is a huge deal, not only you know for in, in the context of um, U.S. law, but of course also in a civil law system like Switzerland. And we have several provisions where we protect animals' um, positive interests, such as their interest in uh, psychological health as well, and being free from fear and pain and not just physical manifestations of that. So psychological spheres as well that we protect. So um, if you look at the World Animal Protection Index, for example, as well, you can see that we're um, firmly ranked among the countries that do take up a leading role in animal law. But of course, that depends on how you define animal law and how you rank it, right? If you take all the players in the international sphere and all of them do a bad job, of course, some of those are going to be better than the other ones. But what if you created a ranking index that ranked countries, not just uh, within the schemes of what currently exists, but within the schemes of within what should exist, right? What if you rank countries with regard to that they should introduce basic rights for animals, that we should have an opportunity for animals to hear and introduce their voice in the political scheme? What about countries that acknowledge the historical wrong done to animals, etc.? And if you add these and many other factors, the ranking system would look completely different from what it is today, right? And I think there's a reason to be skeptical about such rankings today. 
And so Swiss animal law, in most of the animal law experts' opinion, very strictly follows the animal welfare paradigm that is dominant across the world. So the Swiss Animal Welfare Act accepts that animals can be used for human purposes. It accepts that those uses trump the animal's interest to be protected, and it legalizes the casual and routine killing and keeping of animals in various manifestations, not just all animals, of course, but primates as well, um, since unhuman primates is what we're probably focusing on today in our discussion the most. Yeah, of course. And a thought that occurred to me as you were talking about it is that it does really put Switzerland in a very interesting position, not because I, I totally agree with you that it's better than everybody else, but what does that really mean? in the context of, of all animal welfare law being deeply flawed. and But Switzerland has a special role to play by saying, all right, we've kind of gone as far <laughs> as anybody has in protecting animals in this way. Let's look at what's not working. And, and that's exactly what this initiative uh, started to do, I think. And this really started with that provision in your constitution. And there are a lot of countries that have those kinds of provisions, and and I think the EU has not exactly the same thing, but something along the lines of recognizing the sentience of animals, and, and Switzerland actually provides for their dignity in the Constitution. This is always confusing for Americans because our Constitution is taken so literally, and in other countries, it can be more aspirational, I think. Constitutions can be more aspirational, and I've always thought, well, that what is that? What does that mean? Like, like they're still doing all these things to animals in Switzerland that are very, very undignified. But that clause actually did, if I'm right, and I might not be, it was kind of the origin of some commentary that actually led to to thinking more seriously about what's going on with primates. Is that right? Yeah, this is true. So there's a long journey to go to that way. So maybe um, a distinction between sentience and dignity to clarify this, at least in the context of Swiss law. So we've had a provision in the civil law code introduced in 2003, whereby the legislator accepted that animals are sentient beings and aren't just things anymore, but that still all rules applicable to legal objects would still apply to them. So it's almost like we want us to feel better about what we do to animals. And so we just couch it in terms that seem more acceptable to, you know, how we feel about animals, but let's not change anything about our lived realities with animals. So it's a, there already, you can see this bifurcation of the reality that animals are faced with, brutal reality on a daily basis that animals are faced with, and our aspiration to feel better about it. And I think the law has a critical role to play, especially in Switzerland, where it rubber stamps so many of the routine oppressive acts that we do to our animals. And so that's an important dynamic to keep in mind also when we think about dignity protection because the dignity protection was introduced and actually you can take this um, also in Swiss constitutional law taking the constitution literally is one of the main ways in which you interpret Swiss constitutional law so it's actually taken literally too but what they did when the federal council added it usually does so. It adds a huge report to a new constitutional provision being introduced into the constitution. 
And it, in doing so, it added that the dignity of animals must be understood in relative terms. And this is deeply problematic because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> already we're sounding a little dicey. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so most of our concepts of dignity go back to Immanuel Kant and his view about dignity is deeply rooted in the deontological understanding of dignity and how laws emerge from that, or specifically rights emerge from that. So dignity protection in our case is usually absolute. There's no way in which you can legally, legitimately violate someone's dignity. Whereas in the analogs case, we're now saying that the dignity is understood in relative terms, which basically erodes the concept of dignity totally. So it's not understandable why this is done. And then after this dignity provision was introduced in 1992, it became one of the norms guiding the purposes of the Animal Welfare Act, but without serious consequences. So if you look at how dignity is being defined in the Animal Welfare Act, it too states that higher interests can trump dignity violations. And since it, it is us defining what those interests are, whether they are legitimate, whether they can trump animals' interests, there's a huge danger that it's just trivial interests of ours that routinely outweigh animals' most fundamental interests. And that's what's going on in this case. And so we just going back to the report that you mentioned, we have two ethical committees that issued a report a few years back looking at the ethical situation of our treatment of non-human primates, specifically great apes. But with regard to both great apes and primates, they said that given the capacities and interests of these animals, we must seriously consider the possibility or the duty to offer them better protections than protections beyond the Animal Welfare Act. This is the specific terms that they use. And so this, in fact, did prompt thoughts about whether rights are due for non-human primates as well, in line with the demands by animal rights law theory more broadly. But it was interesting to see that this was acknowledged. And I think the Primates Rights Initiative more broadly raises the concerns discussed in theory, namely, can we operate by just amending an Animal Protection Act that is so deeply rooted in the dynamics of welfareism, in the use paradigm, or do we have to completely look away beyond that act and think about new ways of constituting more just relations with non-human animals? Yeah, and that really is the setting for how this all started. And the organization that you're, you were working with on this it's either called sentience or sentience politics. I'm not sure. Or unless those are different things, I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> we call it sentience. Yeah, sentience okay. politics. Yeah. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about, about that organization and its mission? And, and, and then we'll get into like how it was kind of the leader in taking this background and trying to turn it into some kind of a reality. Maybe to clarify, I'm not affiliated with the organization. I helped as okay. an independent legal advisor and I was basically responsible for the entire legal dispute that preceded the vote right now. But apart from that, sentence politics has its own, you know, 
people working for them, and I can't really speak on behalf of them, but the way that I see their major animal rights organization in Switzerland that aims to change the current political environment for animals by predominantly political means and not simply by um, asking people to go vegan, which of course they do as well, but it's mainly, the focus is mainly on political tools. So that would be political initiatives. I'm sure you've heard of that as well. There's a federal initiative going on in Switzerland whereby they demand the abrogation of concentrated animal feeding operations. Um, the initiative process is is probably a bigger deal in Switzerland than anywhere. I mean, certainly California is well known in the United... I mean, only half the states in the United States even have the initiative process. So it's not nearly as embedded in our political system as it is in Switzerland. But but the initiative process seems to be an enormously important part of, of Swiss governing. Can you just tell us a little bit about how it works and the structure? So going back to this differentiation between the Animal Protection Act and the Primates Rights Initiative, it's important to understand that we as a people, we cannot demand that the Animal Protection Act be changed by an initiative. We can't do that with legislative acts. We can do it with constitutional law or the constitution, both on the federal and the cantonal level, but we can't demand such change when it, when it comes to legislative acts. And so what happens is we need to lobby with parliament to prompt such changes. But as in other states as well, many of the parliament members, they have vested interests in several industries, be it zoo, dairy industry, meat industry, etc. So that's immensely difficult to successfully prompt. And the initiative process, it basically works that way that depending on the federal or the cantonal level, there's a certain number of signatures that you have to collect. And once you get those together, you either just prompt in very general terms the parliament to do something. That's not usually what people demand because it's so open-ended and you can't steer the direction in which the parliament will follow those demands or not. The more common one is that you collect those signatures and you demand something very specific. You have like a formulated clause that should be amended or introduced into the constitution. And now before it gets to the vote of the people, you have either it's a federal council or it's the grand council in the case of the canton that rule on whether the initiative is valid. And that's quite a rudimentary test usually. So they would look at whether, you know, the population would be confused by the initiative because it demands conflicting things, or they would look at whether it violates higher laws. Say, for example, in our case, whether the cantonal law would violate federal law. And once the initiative is so-called preliminarily legally valid, it will then go to the votes of the people. Yeah, it's a, a lot of similarities to the process here. You know, we, we, we don't have the time to go into all of the permutations of, of various types of initiative processes. I had not realized, though, that you could not change a statutory provision with your initiative process and that it's purely constitutional. That is the case, I know, in Florida, 
and probably some other states here, but not the case in every state. But anyway, the, the initiative that we're talking about, I, I swear we're going to get to it. I swear we are. <laughs> Before we started this conversation, I said I could do this for six hours, but I'm sure you don't have we six might. hours. And <laughs> I have. <laughs> so the initiative we're concerned with here is in the Canton, as you mentioned, which is like a, a state of Basel. Baselstadt. I, I, I hesitate to pronounce anything in other languages because I usually ruin them, but I'll, I'll, I'll weigh it. So that's just the city of Basel. And does, does it encompass any of the surrounding area geographically? And what are the requirements specifically there for getting something on the ballot? So um, we have 26 cantons in Switzerland and Baselstadt is one of them. It's far north, just in, you have France and Germany just on the border at Basel. So it's, it's, it's a very international community living there. Uh, Baselstadt is also an epicenter for pharmaceutical corporations, Roche, Novartis, etc. They have their main quarters there. And in addition to that, the people of Baselstadt are usually quite open and supportive of animal issues. So when you look at the past votes on the federal level, and you can differentiate that by cantons and how people voted, you can see that the people of Baselstadt have almost, like in a, in a very distinct manner from the general population of Switzerland, almost always supported any of the initiatives that demanded, say, an animal protection lawyer be introduced on the federal level or better protections when it comes to animals used for experimental purposes, etc. So, so the preconditions for a good vote in the primates' rights initiatives were there to begin with. And in Baselstadt, you usually have to have 3,000 signatures, ballot signatures, to get it to the ballot. And which is not a terribly daunting number. And it, so that, that covers uh, how many signatures. How many primates are we talking about? And you specifically mentioned that there were pharmaceutical companies there, and I know that became an issue later on. Which primates this uh, this applied to? But what was the total number that you were trying to address in the in the beginning? So, Marianne, this is really difficult because, as you know from elsewhere, how do you find out how many animals are kept by private institutions or the state, etc.? So we're only having a guess. At this point, we're guessing it's about 300 primates currently. Used to be many more than these, right? And all of these were legally killed, etc. So, if those rights would have been in place years ago, there would have been there would be many more primates currently living in the canton of Baselstadt. But Baselstadt itself isn't as huge, right? We had on the primates' rights initiative, 51,000 people did vote, and so it's not that many people who get to vote in the canton of Baselstadt. We're talking about you know, a small country of Switzerland with a small canton. Right. So what did you ask for? What exactly did this initiative ask for? When somebody went into the voting booth, what did they say yes or no to? The canton of Baselstadt itself has a constitution and it has a basic rights catalog, as does any constitution in Switzerland, Switzerland usually have right in the beginning. And we demanded that there would be, in addition to Article 11, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution, that norm usually lists guarantees of humans such as a right to life, bodily and mental integrity, freedom from torture, right to autonomy and security, a ban on forced labor and human trafficking. And we demanded that it be complemented by the following terms, 
This constitution guarantees, among others, the rights of non-human primates to life and bodily and mental integrity. So let's talk a little bit about the decisions you made in, in constructing that language. You could have asked for, well, maybe you couldn't have. I, could you have asked for better treatment uh, the way ballot initiatives in the states have done? Of course, you know, we just discussed that you can only go to the constitution, not to, not to laws. And, it, you know, Ballot initiatives in the United States are so different in that they have generally asked for very minor improvements, like the elimination of the battery cage or whatever, and, you know, making it more likely that they would be successful, but it would cover an enormous number of animals. You focused on a very small number of animals, but gave them really a lot. Why? Different from the non-human rights project, for example, the primates rights initiative is focused on all non-human primates, not just great apes, for example, or like the great ape initiative, they used to be focused on the great apes as well, right? So we wanted, we wanted the initiative to have a practical, to have a tangible effect. At the same time, we wanted people, if they voted for the initiative to understand this would not turn the world completely upside down in the sense that hey, we can introduce rights for animals without this world being completely different, without me feeling like my privileges have been stripped from me, right? So I think that was an important lesson for us to to teach people this, this idea of human rights and animal rights being compatible in a very basic sense and actually mutually reinforcing, in my opinion. We didn't ask for the better treatment of non-human primates because there is a federal competency to so-called protect animals and our arguments to make the case that the canton has the competency to legislate in this manner was that protection animal protection is something or animal welfare is something completely and structurally different from from animal rights this was an important addendum as well so having just a norm be introduced in the constitution which is such an important and a document that you know is not easily amended and should be forward-looking and also you know guide people's actions towards animals i think it was important for us not just to have a toned down small improvement be made so how would this play out as a practical matter i mean life obviously if you say i somebody has a monkey and they own that monkey, and and we'll see that it got limited. Who was subject to this? But but for the moment, if they were subject to such a provision, what would they be prohibited from doing on this bodily and mental integrity provision? So you're you're not interested in the life provision? Well, I I just I just was thinking that life seemed obvious. You're not allowed to kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. So <laughs> I'm interested no, in the whole I, thing. I, I just think it's fundamental, right? So currently under the Animal Protection Act, I have two dogs sitting in the background here and I can take both of them to the veterinary and ask him to kill my dogs, so-called humanely. And it's just legal, maybe because I don't like the way that they bark or it's financially too costly to have them, etc. And the same is the case with non-human primates. I can eliminate them as long as this is done so-called humanely at any time that I want, regardless of whether they do have interests in continuing to live or not. I think this is really a fundamental point because the zoo in Switzerland has actually gotten rid of primates depending on whether it's financially sound for them or not. So there was a chimpanzee, Kalibi, who was killed 
almost a year ago. He was mobbed by fellow chimpanzees and the zoo decided to get rid of the chimpanzee, although he was otherwise healthy up until that point, simply because it was too costly to find a new enclosure for him and also compatible uh, fellow animals that, you know, where they could peacefully live together. And so that's fundamental, in my opinion. I just want to make clear, it's not that I didn't think that was important. No, no, I know. I (laughs) thought I understood what it meant, whereas I'm not exactly sure what the rest of it means in the real world. The, 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 bodily and mental integrity mm-hmm. or does that does it have to wait to be interpreted so that would also mean for example routine invasive experimentation on animals wouldn't be admissible anymore unless they're of course fully within the interests of the animals that's one huge consequence as in our case the idea was behind these three rights that they both be somehow supported by the broader legal theories that developed around humans' right to life and human re- humans' right to bodily and mental integrity. But of course, as initiators, we do not have the power to tell fully how such rights will come to fruition in practice. We do not have this power. We can say what we think should be the case, but at the end of the day, it's administrative bodies and the courts watching them that get to interpret what that means precisely. Yeah, of course. Uh, People sometimes don't realize how much risk is involved in legal progress, and it's just the way it is. Uh, If they would just put me in charge of everything, it would be much better, Mm -hmm. but they don't. So we all have to take risks in what other people will, uh, will think. But basically, maybe just to add, I mean, that's the danger with any right that you introduce. And at the same time, it's a trump of rights that they're so that they're applicable in so many different situations that you can't fully foresee how they're going to what they're going to develop into. Right. So basic rights in the European legal tradition usually meant it would just be classic rights against the state that prohibited the state from interfering with their own interests. And over the years, the protective, the claim function of these basic rights has become much more, much richer in terms of that you have positive demands against the state in the sense that the state has to provide for you in uh, states of emergency or in states of need, etc. And the same in theory is possible when it comes to basic rights for animals so that we do not just think of it as negative rights towards the state whereby the state should get his hands out of your own business and leave you alone, but also that the state is obliged to actually take care of you. Yeah, and and that certainly is the goal down the road, but you almost immediately ran into a huge roadblock in even doing this. I got the feeling from looking at another interview with you that that it it was all kind of shocking how how many roadblocks you ran into, but I guess animal lawyers should never be shocked. So your initiative, as you mentioned before, it had to be authorized by the Grand Council of Baselstadt, and I assume that's the legislative body. And it was not approved. Uh, Can you tell us what happened? They did not approve it on several grounds. First, they said primates are not rights bearers. They're not legal subjects. Hence, we can't give them rights, even if we wanted to. And the federal government has full competency to determine 
who counts as a legal person and who doesn't. That was the first point. And the second point was that they said that the federal government has exhaustive competency to protect animals per the constitution. And this is a form of animal protection, hence it violates higher constitutional, federal constitutional law as well, hence is invalid. I want to go deeper into both of those. They just seem inherently like contradictory. <laughs> like, like, is it granting them legal personhood or is it an animal protection provision? Like, in my mind, looking at it from, I guess, the viewpoint of American law, these seem like totally different things. And and no matter what you say, no, you can't do that is, is basically the attitude you get when you do animal law. So let's start with the legal personhood thing. This isn't exactly what we mean, I think, in the States when we talk about legal personhood. They're just saying that the federal government, if I understand it, correct me where I get this wrong, has a statute laying out who's a legal person. And if you're not in that statute, you're not allowed to have any rights at all. This just doesn't have anything to do with the kind of legal personhood of being, which we talk about a lot here, of of having standing to bring a legal case to to go before a court or something. It's just you're not allowed to have rights at all if you're not on this list. It's almost like a preconditions to be, to have rights, to be granted rights. It has nothing to do with legal standing at all, which is much more practical, right? And you determine that depending on the statute, which we don't. We have a civil law code and that is enacted by the federal government and almost all European legal traditions work that way. And they usually say every human being is a legal person. You have that in the European Convention of Human Rights as well. And then they, in addition to that, grant legal personhood to legal entities. So they recognize them as having legal personhood per the civil code. There's also provision, which I mentioned before, in this civil code that recognizes animals are not legal things, but still determines in the second paragraph that they will be treated as if they were legal things. (laughs) that's just a classic one yeah yeah it is no animals are wonderful we i love animals animals are great somebody should really do something but no the law isn't doing anything sorry (laughs) and you wonder why was this done in the first place yeah so they said that this competency you know fully determines who counts as a legal person for the purposes of the law at large not just for the purposes of civil law, but for the purposes of public law, etc. An arg- argument was that even though this is the dominant opinion in legal scholarship, in theory, it's not right because civil law is subordinate to public constitutional law. And there's several norms in the constitution that give cantons the right, especially in public law, to go way beyond that. And we argued that legal personhood, the way that it's understood in the civil law context, also only applies to the civil law context. So if you have private people or private parties um, meeting one another, say if you and I had a contract, but not when it comes to the vertical relationship between you as a private party and the state, which is manifestly different, we argued. And this is the point that we've won. So this is the point that both the Constitutional Court of the Canton of Bosselstadt and then the federal, the Swiss Federal Supreme Court said, yeah, that's right. The Canton does have the right in the area of public law to actually recognize animals as legal persons if they want to. And 
another on the side note, I mean, it was nowhere mentioned in judgments, but nowhere did they say that the canton first has to explicitly recognize animals as legal persons and then grant them basic rights. So you can just grant them basic rights and as such, they will then be recognized as legal persons, which I think is a great development in that respect. Yeah, no, that seems like a huge accomplishment in and of itself before you even got to the vote. Let's talk about the other grounds. And as you mentioned, and we can probably conflate it here, there there was the original court case to the Basel court, and then it went to this, it, it ultimately, it was appealed by um, the Grand Council of Basel and went to the Supreme Court. But we, we don't have to talk about those decisions separately. You've, you've already talked about both of them. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, just to mention on the side, just to make it a bit more spicy, Grand Council actually doesn't have the right to appeal such a decision, but they instructed six members of the Grand Council to do so. And then they actually took over the costs of that legal dispute, which is illegal. And the independent report that has been demanded to actually shed light on what happened there almost two years after it was demanded, we still don't have any report on this matter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Things are slimy everywhere, <laughs> even, even in Switzerland. <laughs> All right. So the sec- the first argument had to do with legal personhood. And I am so glad I asked that because it's so different from how we think of legal personhood and a very different concept. And the second, as you said, was an argument that legislation for animal welfare is exclusively limited to the federal level. How did the courts deal with that? So we have a provision in the federal constitution, which is Article 80, and it basically says that the federal government is responsible to legislate on the protection of animals. And then it lists as examples areas that it can legislate on. And that would be keeping in care of animals, experiments on animals, procedures carried out on living animals, the use of animals, and their killing. And our argument was that the rights, the legal protections that we look for to introduce for non-human primates are manifestly different from this welfare and use paradigm, from these laws that purport to protect animals but actually don't do so. And the canton has the right to go way beyond that because the directionality is just a manifestly different one. That was our argument. The constitutional courts did not support this argument. It said that we conflate means by ends. So rights would just be a means to better protect animals. And so it understood animal protection in a very broad way, encompassing both welfare protections and also rights protections. And this is where things started to go wrong, as you said. So they said, because it's not manifestly different from the more standard protections of animals, that the federal government is allowed to regulate, this initiative could only have an effect on cantonal authorities and not on private parties because private parties and their actions in relation to non-human primates are already governed by the Federal Swiss Animal Protection Act. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure it makes sense, but I think that is what, <laughs> <laughs> what you have made sense of what they said. I'm not sure that, that I'm still struggling, too, because I work in climate law as well. And I find it so, so interesting that the federal council, the Grand Council of the Canton of Basel-Stadt, had the exact same legal situation going on when it comes to crime, climate protection, 
So the federal government has competency and there's a CO2 Act governing these relations. And yet there was a cantonal initiative demanding a new CO2 Act to be introduced on the cantonal level. And it said, no problem at all. And, you know, so it's really interesting, depending on the political context and the matter that you're talking about, I think it's important for us to understand that legal arguments can only take us so far. It's still embedded in the broader political constraints that dominate our world. Oh, it's so important to remind ourselves of that all the time and to remind people, you know, who just say, well, well, why don't, why doesn't somebody sue? Why did, you know, the, the courts are not going to change the entire world. The courts are going to, to follow, especially in the kind of issues that we're dealing with. I mean, both the animal question and the climate question, they're not going to go far out from where the political reality is. And it's so important to keep that in mind all the time. But what are the principle that the court did rely on? Because the court did allow you to go forward, even though it vastly limited the application. There's sort of this when in doubt, put it to a vote principle. And I I really love that. That seems to be a very democratic way to proceed. It is. I'll quickly come back to that in just a minute. Just I'm finishing up on this point about federal competency, animal protection and how and whether and who, which actors are being affected by the initiative. The Swiss Federal Supreme Court actually backed up the cantonal constitutional court's decision to only have the effect of this initiative be limited to cantonal actors. So it says, well, if the canton wants to go further, it can do so, but private actors like the zoo, pharmaceutical corporations, etc., would not be affected thereby. We as initiators, even if we don't, I manifestly don't agree with that, also in line with the line of judgments that we have from the federal Supreme Court in other areas. They don't just, they do not do that differentiation between private actors and public actors. They don't ever do that. It has to do with the regulatory angle that you get to, the court calls it a hook. What's your hook to deal with a matter? So if you have, the federal government legislate on when and how planes can land or take off, and it deals with air protection. But then you have the Canton do this from the perspective of aesthetics, uh, whatever it is, or uh, to protect the picturesque image of a village, etc. It's a different hook that it has to the matter even though it regulates the same matter. And so that would be legal. This is usually the line of argument that the federal court follows, but it did not in our case. But there's nothing that we can do. Federal court, Swiss Supreme Court decision is the last one that we get to. We can't appeal it, no matter how broad the arguments are that we bring and how many alternatives that we offer as well. The court is not obliged to deal with every single argument that we provide. It can just pick out whichever it wants and deal with those um, the way it sees fit. So there's limited room to deal with that. But I think, I mean, you could tell me, right? Was it still worth to then go ahead and have the people vote on this matter? I believe it absolutely was because for the first time ever, we got the citizens of the Canton of Basel-Stadt to seriously think about is what we currently do to non-human primates the way that it should be? Is this 
governance of just relations with non-human animals? Does our Animal Protection Act maybe help or actually legitimize the use um, and abuse of those animals? And should we as a canton do more to actually abide by our principles to do better? I, I mean, I think it's definitely worth it. I mean, inevitably, anything you bring on behalf of animals only addresses a very small number of animals. I mean, you started off doing that by just going for primates and not all animals, inevitably. So even if it ended up just addressing a very small number of animals who happened to be owned by the Canton, the symbolic value of that, I mean, if the Canton had, had then been governed by those uh, provisions, and hopefully at some point it will be, that's enormous. Like, why should those animals be protected better than animals owned by pharmaceutical? I mean, it brings up all of these questions that any wedge that we can slip in to separate some animals out and say, we're going to treat these animals properly, it then puts a light on the fact that all of the other animals are not being subjected to appropriate laws. And so I think it was definitely worth going ahead. I do think it's, you know, it would have been better to win. But as we all know, Winning doesn't happen automatically. So let's let's get to the, um, I mean, we've spent enough time on the court cases. Let's get to the campaign, if that's okay. Unless there's, did you want to add something? Yeah, maybe just to a uh, minor point to the differentiation between private and public actors. I think it's an illusion to think that you can neatly discern which cases are governed by, you know, then rights for primates, but then other ones that are governed by the Animal Protection Act. Because if you're a pharmaceutical corporation and you do experiments on non-human primates, the Canton actually gives you permission to do that. So the Canton is manifestly involved in these cases. So the differentiation will be always hugely difficult. It will be hugely difficult to foresee how this plays out in practice. And this was used as a case in point against the initiative, right? Because you can't they said it's almost like a Pandora's box. You can't really tell what's going to come your way once primates' rights will be introduced. But there's not much that we can do as initiators in that respect. We can provide a wish list of what we'd like that to be the case, but whether authorities and courts will follow that is a totally different question. Of course. And I mean, I think that's a, a point in your part that, yes, this will play out in the future. But we're not in charge of, of who's going to win. The courts will be in charge of who's going to win and how this plays out. So th it gets on the ballot in this limited format. And what was the campaign like? Was there vocal opposition? Was there vocal support? Was it passionate? Did it, did it fall by the wayside amidst all of the news about COVID and every other crisis in the world? What, how did the campaign play out? So maybe a caveat before I begin. I was not hugely involved in the campaigning itself because I do so much of the academic work and I feel like I'm an expert in this area and less so in the other. You can tell us as an observer. Yeah. Uh, so as an observer, I'd say, first of all, it's important to understand that at the same time that this vote took place, there was a federal vote on whether all experiments on animals should come to an end. Yeah, I saw that. And I definitely wanted to talk about the implications of them both being on the ballot at the same time. Yeah. And again, this happened because of a mistake done by the Grand Council of the Canton of Basel-Stadt. It could have, it should have come to the vote way earlier. Yeah. Uh, let's not talk about these procedures not being abided by by the Canton <laughs> itself. Anyway, so that's important to understand 
people suddenly were confronted with two totally different concepts, like what's a ban and what are rights and why are the two coming together and what's happening on the federal level and what's happening on the cantonal level. So this setting to begin with was not optimal. That's important to understand. And despite the initiative being manifestly limited to cantonal public organs, there was huge vocal opposition opposition by pharmaceutical corporations, but mainly by the zoo. There's just one huge zoo in the cantonal Baselstadt, and it was, you know, greatly involved in arguing that these rights aren't necessary, that the Animal Protection Act does the best it, it, it can already, and that primates are well protected under its scheme. Yeah, and, you know, I, I just want to reiterate, in case people missed it, this is not a public zoo, so the, the law would not have applied to it. It's a private zoo, but they... That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I can't imagine there wasn't some backtalk amongst all of these entities who were opposed to it. Obviously, zoos are more popular than pharmaceutical companies. So it isn't surprising that they would be the front or the the public-facing entity for opposing this initiative, even though it didn't apply to any of them at all. But, you know, they saw the writing on the wall. They saw that it would it would have an effect on them down the road, uh, or it likely would, and they don't want to see this kind of progress. That's That seems obvious. Zoos more generally, they're in a defensive seat, right? And they feel attacked easily by initiatives, initiatives like these. And the responses are typically very emotional. So it was interesting to see how the zoo, you know, felt attacked by the initiative, even though it manifestly didn't affect it. That was in in and of itself interesting to note. Yeah, it is interesting. Tell us about the vote which, you know, we've already pointed out was disappointing, but but tell us any details about it. And then let's talk about the implications of losing and, and next steps. I find it so interesting that you think we didn't win and that we lost and that it's disappointing because I see it so uh, differently. I talk to people about good, this and I'm good. like, am I being naive right now? <laughs> so, okay, maybe to the facts, we had the vote um, three days ago on Sunday, February 13, 2022. More than 51,000 people gave their vote, 13,000 in favor, 30, uh, 38,000 against, roughly. Um, so it's 25.3% in favor and 74.7% against the initiative. And so everyone was manifestly disappointed on the side of the animal rights initiative, the primates rights initiative, and everyone else was hugely relieved. They said, this is a vote of confidence in the existing animal welfare system. They also claimed that the legal experiment that demanded basic rights for monkeys is now off the table. I think it's totally different, the situation, because I look at it in terms of time. I look at it from a broader trajectory. And I want to, without saying that the two examples are comparable in all respects, I think they're important comparisons to be drawn between women's suffrage movements in Switzerland and the animal rights initiative that we currently have. So. Just last year, we celebrated 50 years of women's suffrage in Switzerland. So we were one of the last states in Europe and worldwide to introduce voting rights for women. That was done in 1971 through a federal vote. So unlike other states where 
women's voting rights were introduced by precedent, for example, by a Supreme Court case, etc. We did this by having the male population vote on whether they would be willing and so kind as to also give us women the right to vote. And so you can imagine that this trajectory did not just, like this issue wasn't one in one single vote. So we've had initiatives taking place over 50 years prior to 1971. It was over 72 votes that were being done on the cantonal level alone. There were losses of 29 votes uh, where male, the male population said, we're not giving these rights to women. And so you can either see all of these as a loss. I don't believe they are. I don't think that the final federal vote in 1971 was the one success. I think without all the prior votes on the cantonal federal level, this would never have taken place. So all of these votes prior to that added such critical dimensions to the discourse where people, whereby you prompted societal change because you asked people to properly think about is the current situation whereby we have women in the state, but we bereave them of one of the most important rights to have a say in the political system that they're subordinated to and that we deny them that right. Is that just at all, right? And so this discourse took place over 50 years of time. And the first time that people voted on this issue on the federal level was in 1959. And 33% of the male population said yes. And so we have a cantonal initiative where 25% said yes. So it's not that different, right? And I see this as part of a longer journey toward, you know, politicizing our relations with non-human animals in a normative sense. Of course, it's already politicized, but to actually talk about this and tease out the normative dimensions of that to work toward, toward a more just relation and world with animals, at least within the confines of Swiss borders for now. I, I love the way you think of it. And I have to say, I listened to an interview of you that was recorded before the vote, oh, a while before the vote. And somebody brought up the idea, well, what if you only get 10% of the vote? And even at that point, you said, that would be great, 10% of the vote. Well, that's not a quote, but but you definitely have both before and after seen this as part of a process, not as a yes or no proposition. And I think that's why you have to think of it. It's it's so similar to me to an interview I had with uh, David Michelson, who's running a ballot initiative in Oregon, a very different ballot initiative. But he also brought up that in Oregon, the you know, a U.S. state, Votes for Women was also passed by ballot initiative. And he said it took, it had to be done over and over, not as many times as in Switzerland, I'll admit. But you know, it was a it was a learning process through that entire process. And so he thinks of, of ballot initiatives for animals as being very similar. So he has a very similar attitude. Are there next steps in this particular effort? Just quickly, maybe, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would have loved for this to turn out um, so-called positively in the sense that we, in the sense that these rights be introduced. But I think it's definitely a win. Also consider the fact that in this campaign, and I didn't mention that before, but all of the major left and green parties were on board with the initiative. And that's 
fantastic. You would not get that elsewhere. You'd have like minor small parties, maybe supporting the initiative on the side, but not being okay with being outspoken about it. So we had major green left socialist parties supporting the initiative. The next steps right now, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm mainly concerned about the legal arguments and legal cases, etc. And I think it's important for us to to not just label this as a loss, but to reflect on it positively and also maybe envisage further steps going ahead the road. But I think the vote's been so fresh right now. We're we're all still licking wounds and thinking about how to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have no doubt there will be next steps and I'll be looking forward to hearing about them. And, be, you can, know, can I can I add something? Because I found this really interesting. I have an animal rights law seminar going on right now. And the students, they actually they've written fantastic seminar papers, critically dealing just with animal rights. Right. The way that it's introduced, etc. And I had one fantastic student and she she made a huge effort to tease out the argumentative objections once that were being raised before uh, women's voting rights were introduced and once uh, when it comes to the introduction of animal rights. And so she found some really interesting parallels that I think we could, you know, just briefly touched on. So she found out that in the political debates, of course, the nature of these individual entities was raised. So it was raised that the nature of women is to be a mother at home and a mom of children and not to be politically invested. The same is, of course, true with animals. It's in the nature of animals to serve human beings and to be used for their purposes. Then they also had parallels between uh, statements about capacities. So the federal council in 1959 said, we women, we lacked the intellectual and mental capacities to actually vote on the really demanding issues that people in Switzerland get to vote on. And the same, of course, is true when it comes to animal rights. It's being said that animals lack what's necessary to have rights or to actually use them in practice, etc. And there's also the argument of fear and of loss of powers and privileges. So before women's rights were introduced, female power in politics was seen as a threat. Here the Federal Council said, if women had such rights, the influence of each vote of a man would thereby be limited by half. And (laughs) that is a sleazy argument. (laughs) And speaking about, you know, campaigning prior to the private rights initiative, the same was the case that people suddenly started to fear that their rights would be affected thereby, even though that was not the case. There's also the argument of acceptance of minimalism. So when it comes to the women's suffrage movement, it was said that Switzerland already has an established and exceptional democratic process. And with the current initiative for primates that just took place, everyone was of the opinion that we already do way more than it's necessary to protect animals because we rank so highly compared to other states. And then there's finally the argument of lack of realization that it's unrealistic. It's not, you can't really implement that in practice, which also took place 
on both of these levels. So I think that's really interesting. And I think there's also so much more socio-legal work necessary to tease out these dynamics, anticipate these arguments, and actually also confront maybe the public about such parallels and analogies. Absolutely. I mean, I think that proves in and of itself how much the conversation has been opened that you had the opportunity to assign that paper, that student had the opportunity to look at those questions, that, you know, this is how things change. Of course, we don't have a lot of time to change everything, but the work goes on. I, and I had wanted to ask you about your teaching, but I also wanted to ask you because before I let you go, and I know I've kept you for a long time, but this is not obviously the only project you are working on. And maybe this will have to wait for another interview, but you're working on a lot of very important subjects regarding animals. And you've done work regarding the global protection of animals. And I know animal labor, there's a, a recent book out that takes some really interesting takes on, on the question of animal labor. Can you just tell us briefly about the other work that you're doing and maybe a, a deeper conversation will, will await another time? Sure. So do you want me to delve deeper into like the global animal law stuff or the animal labor stuff? Or Well, I, I would like to hear briefly about everything, <laughs> but I definitely want to hear about global protection of animals because I just think that's a that's a very hot issue right now and absolutely has to be. Oh, it's actually a topic that gets at me emotionally these days because there's uh, we have a a very focused discussion about this matter as the Global Journal of Animal Law is having a special issue on treaty proposals on the international level to protect animals. And I believe it replicates some of the problematic dynamics that are at play on the domestic levels. So like the principle of unnecessary animal suffering that is, in my opinion, problematic from an animal rights perspective. And it's also problematic in terms of facilitating the oppression of human outgroups. And so we're having really deep conversation about this topic, but it's something that's close to my heart because I did my PhD about it. So I was really concerned about the fact that once animals are used for commercial purposes, the argument to better protect them on the domestic level is always kind of downplayed by the fact that if you introduce better protections for animals, that production would go abroad. And so what happens from a global perspective is that every state keeps its protection levels of protections to a minimum. And the regulatory competition, we call this a so-called race to the bottom. And so you'd look at what ways there are to actually deal with the situation. And one, of course, would be having such an international treaty for which there's so many proposals out there in the world and some better, some less, some more realistic, but then with compromised content and some less realistic, but with more ambitious content. These are difficult waters to navigate, especially depending on, you know, we all come from our own different countries with our own different views about the role of international law and in how it comes to life. So, that was really interesting. And I looked at extraterritorial jurisdiction. Excuse the word. It's really, you almost cannot pronounce it. No, but that, that's, that's your first book, right? It is on extraterritorial yeah, jurisdiction. Because it's extraterritorial jurisdiction is a huge thing in human rights law. And it has revolutionized that conversation and protections for humans in that respect. And I looked at whether and how it can be made fruitful to basically take away the power from that argument of 
production moving abroad and how you can prevent races to the bottom from happening, but instead prompt a race to the top, whereas su such that states would actually truly invest in better protecting animals. Yeah, it's a hugely important topic, not one that I, I have a great deal of expertise in. So I'm excited to be hearing more from you in the future. And, you know, it's something that is playing out on a micro level, I suppose, here in the States, because we have the same problem with our constitutional commerce clause and limitations on interstate commerce and whether states are, are legislating extraterritorially when they limit the sale of animal products by certain humane considerations, like whether battery cages were used. And the same issue is playing out. It seems to be playing out well legally so far, but, you know, there is a case pending in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court right now is not likely to be friendly. And there's also legislation pending in, in Congress on the same subject. It's a hugely, hugely I mean, it's an enormous problem. And you know much more about the international situation, which is, of course, complex and just so, so important. I, you know, if we cannot pass laws that govern what can be sold, we, we really cannot limit the horrors. Yeah. Here again, we're at the point where we have to admit that, again, the laws only take us so far. There's only so much we can do with it. But it's so it's so much embedded within this these broader political constraints and realities, and then economic interests that states have, that corporations have, etc. So that would be an interesting conversation to have in the future. Yeah. Yes, we'll have to have that conversation at some point. And as I mentioned, you've already done really important work. Just tell us a little bit about the book on animal labor, and then I promise I will let you go. Sure. So as you've done in so many podcasts, you've centered on this animal rights, animal welfare debate. And at some point in the literature and in practice, we had to believe that it was at the point where, you know, a conversation would just not proceed fruitfully. And we're almost always having these boundary conversations about these two concepts. And then there's new work that came up on animal labor, whereby some authors said that, you know, what we do to animals, they're actually laborers. Say, think about a monkey in an experiment working with the experimenter. This is a form of labor. And others saying, hey, what about the dairy cow offering milk on a farm? Isn't she also a laborer as well? And what does that mean, right? And so you have some authors saying, oh, that's totally within, we can just think about our relations that we currently have with animals, make sure that these relations are truly humane and the animals, they give us the gift of life in return for us taking care of them. And this is the labor relation. And we were, of course, hugely concerned by such arguments. And we said, no, 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 wait, there's so much more to explore here because labor movement has always been a liberation movement as well and a movement for strong social protections for people working, right? And so we looked at whether this lens of labor could also not be used in a positive sense to think about animals. So if you were indeed to recognize most of the animals as working for and with us, this is just descriptive, right? You'd recognize that. And so you'd recognize them as workers, which already makes them, it brings them much more closer to the area of subjects than it than they were previously in the area of legal objects. That's one point. 
But once you recognize that status, you have to think about the normative consequences of that. And we argue in the book, and there's there's so many chapters in there that have different accounts and that zoom in on certain aspects that are really interesting to explore. But basically, our hypothesis and also thrust for the book was that we argued, well, as in the labor movement more broadly, you have to have certain forms of labor that need to be prohibited. Forced labor, being killed at the place of work where you work at, being engaged at work, etc. But then use labor laws also to work toward a more just relation with animals because animals, you know, as they don't just want to be you know, eliminated from this earth, but they want to be part of this planet as well. And some of these animals do actually want to interact with us in a positive manner, especially uh, some domesticated animals. And so we look at whether the lens of labor could be fruitful to think about this. And I know that's difficult from a US perspective because labor law has been so eroding Labor and employment law has been so eroding in the context of US law. And again, there's that huge divide between European and American approaches to labor laws. But for us, it's been a really empowering set of laws that were instrumental in also bringing about better protections more broadly, better even basic rights. And so there's actually been an interesting special issue that just came out at Politics and Animals, where we talk with critics about the book. And so one thing we also talk about is the sequence of the introduction of such rights. Should basic rights come first and then we'd have labor rights? Is it maybe labor rights that realistically come first? And then that would be an entry point to then think about introducing basic rights, etc. So lots of interesting conversations to have there as well. Like, I don't know enough about it to comment on it, but it's so good to have a new way of looking at these issues and a new body of law to bring to bear to think about what's happening to animals. So so perhaps we can also have another conversation about that sometime when I am better informed. So thanks so much for, for all you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us today and telling us about this initiative and for framing it in such a positive light so we can all feel feel really good about it. And and there is much, much to celebrate here. Marianne, don't be fooled. This isn't about making you feel better. This is honestly what I believe. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not pragmatic enough to be I didn't think it was fake. In, no, I didn't. No, it's seriously what I think. And so thank you so much for having me today and letting me reflect with you on this matter. And I hope we all get to work at this intersection much more in the future and also see how it plays out in practice because it's so much easier to think about what rights could look like in theory but then when you try to make them work on a political level you get some real heavy roadblocks and I think there's value in theorizing about how you deal with that in future in all the jurisdictions etc so thank you so much Yeah, we are trying to change the way the world works. So obviously there are going to be a few bumps in the road, but thanks so much for doing it and for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. And thank you so much to Charlotte for taking the time to tell us about this extraordinary effort. And thank you to Jen Riley for her help in producing the podcast, to Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven, for the editing, and to Veronica Kolinska for graphic design. If you are not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. 
please consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in. 